at the new indian we have with us air marshal m mathewaran former deputy chief of integrated defense staff he was responsible for policy planning and structural development of the three services until his retirement in 2014 he also has a doctorate in defense and strategic studies he started his military career as a fighter pilot welcome to reason the new indians platform where we get to the reason of issues that concern you welcome sir thank you hathi pleasure to be here air marshal mathewaran i wanted to understand the perspective of ukraine russian war that is going on right now and i wanted to understand how is this war playing out for both the countries what does it really mean on the ground based on the information that we have in public domain okay uh, i think it's uh, indeed uh, a very uh, critical time in global uh, history or the international systems uh, environment uh, this war is uh, fundamentally about a serious geopolitical uh, contest uh, for let's say supremacy or or from a russian perspective uh, stability and uh, parity uh, between us and its allies and on one side and russia on the other side and uh, therefore in the context of this geopolitical context between these two you know uh, powers uh, much of the world will get affected it's it is the beginning of cold war 2 uh but it is not like the previous cold war which was essentially an ideological contest and soviet union collapsed not because america won the cold war it, it collapsed because of internal contradictions the time is quite different now uh, the current crisis has been pushed by the us and its allies trying to expand their influence in the central and eastern european regions Uh, the one of the main objective is also to curtail russia so that russia doesn't come up to challenge as a peer part of the us hegemony and that is the essence of this contest and ukraine is a pawn in this grand chessboard as the big new brothers keeps calling it now how it matters to india is we are a rising power and therefore how we play our cards is extremely important and uh, not fall into pressures from either side to fall into one of the camps i think our foreign policy at the moment is extremely well balanced we are we've taken a neutral stand and we sympathize with the ukrainians but i think we are very careful in monitoring the geopolitical developments much of the world's international order will get affected over the next 20 years because of this conflict it's to understand from the perspective of a military man was it an invasion uh let me put it from my uh, analysis and perspective is uh, russia has been provoked to take the action that it has taken so that process uh has been underway for ever since the end of the cold war 1 and uh, gradually uh, you know the us which had uh, and the western allies which had promised uh the former soviet union that uh, the nato will not expand and logically the nato had no business to exist when warsaw pact had collapsed but the nato coming into being the essence of that reason coming into being is to counter the soviet 
threat, that itself had vanished, and therefore the business of NATO, uh, NATO's existence was in question. However, as I said, the U.S. wanted to expand. There's a lot of economic reasons also in the background, which is actually the main core reason ultimately, is the European Union expansion and NATO expansion further into the former Soviet republics. And therefore, when this has happened, contrary to, you know, the Russian warnings, and Russia was very weak in the 1990s and early 2000s, and therefore the warnings didn't really matter much to the U.S. side. And they started expanding in five phases, from 12 to 16 members. Now, today, NATO has about 28 members. And all the Balkan countries, uh, Poland, Romania, Hungary, they've all been incorporated into NATO. Ukraine is at the real centerpiece of the, as uh, Brzezinski calls it, the grand chessboard, or Alfred Mackinder calls it the pivot of history, geographical pivot of history. And that is important. When Ukraine joins NATO, and as Putin says, the dagger is at Russia's throat. That insecurity is not acceptable. And therefore, Putin has reacted. So, in practical terms, when you look at it from today's perspective, yes, Russia has invaded Ukraine. But Russia has been forced to invade Ukraine because of the gradual buildup and the threat that the West has posed to Russia. So, it's a reaction in effect. So, a lot of people who support Zelensky and Ukraine in this war have been saying that Ukraine is a sovereign country and it has the right and it has also the choice to decide which way it wants to go, whether it wants to be a part of NATO or not. It's entirely up to Ukraine and Ukrainian people. What would you say to that? Well, every country, theoretically, it's like the UN Charter, which says every nation is sovereign, independent, and can make their own choices. But the international order doesn't exist in practical terms like that. Uh, you know, uh, alarmed at your security decisions, it will have an impact on his reaction or her reaction uh, to this country. And therefore, Ukraine, having been a former Soviet Republic, and when Soviet Union melted away, as there are certain treaty bindings that came up uh, as these states became independent. And some of these treaty bindings were Ukraine was part of the Commonwealth of Independent States, which also had a security understanding between Russia and the former republics. And if, it, if Ukraine decides to throw away all of those commitments and move to the West, into the Western camp, it certainly is going to be questioned by Russia. So, theoretically, what you're saying is right, and that is actually a fallacy that's being propounded by Western propaganda. That yes, theoretically, every country has a right to join whichever side they want to join. But when you now take that decision to join some side, then you be ready to face the repercussions that those decisions will bring about. And that's exactly what's happening in the case of Ukraine. It's a wrong decision. And that's why even a master strategist like Henry Kissinger, John May Shermer, they all say, Ukraine needs to be neutral. In fact, Kissinger says in 2014, when the problem started in 2014, he's saying this is a bad decision. Ukraine needs to be neutral. It is wrong for America to push Ukraine to bring it into NATO. Ukraine needs to be a bridge between Russia and the West. And that is, that is where they will, it will be good for that country as well. So I think these are practical ways of looking at geopolitical issues or real politics. And you need to actually factor that. That is extremely important.
So we can't go by just theoretical articulation. We need to be very practical. It's like in Indian India surroundings. Every decision, independent decision, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Nepal, they all can make independent decisions. But if their decisions have a bearing on India's security, they better consider how India will react. Air Marshal Mathesvaran, can you tell us how effective Putin's military strategy has been on the ground in Ukraine? Because it's been over a, almost a month and yet Russian forces uh, haven't been able to take Kyiv. What exactly has happened on the ground and how effective have the troops been on the Russian side? We need to be very clear about uh, this war is also uh, a tremendous amount of information warfare that's going on, a perception management that's going on. There is a plethora of, you know, Western formulations that are coming out which is also being repeated by our own TV channels about what's going on on the ground. Much of all that I would call as propaganda. You're not hearing very much from the Russian side because as it is, they don't have so much of uh, reach and leverage as the Western media has. And second, much of their TV channels etc., etc., have been shut down by lack of access to Western you know, audiences. That's one. But second is, what is Putin's objective? He's, he doesn't call it as a war. He says it's a special military operation. One. Second, what does he want to do with Ukraine? He says Ukraine will not enter NATO. Ukraine will remain neutral. And Ukraine's, you know, the government that has been installed through a, a staged coup in 2014 needs to replace, get replaced, and people's mandate needs to be reflected in the government that is there in Kiev. Okay, these are the broad... Uh, you know, uh, objectives. But going by uh, the geopolitical uh, dimensions of Russian interests, uh, the eastern half and nearly the southern half, half of Ukraine is largely uh, pro-Russian or Russian-speaking people dominate the population. But, uh, you know, the there's a different narrative that's been peddled, which I think one needs to sift through and then understand the nuances. So, uh, contrary to what the general, you know, propaganda that's been put out, Putin is not looking for a blitzkrieg operation to capture Ukraine, you know, the full country of Ukraine. He would be foolish to do that, and that is not his intention. He is now wanting to actually secure the areas that have been under attack for the last eight years, which is the Donbass region. He will liberate that. He will create a bridge, uh, the connecting bridge between the Donbass region and Crimea. And that is a strategic objective. And that is already more or less done. Mariupol will fall any time. And therefore, they'll go full hog on getting Mariupol. Mariupol is not because people are resisting compared to what has been given in the propaganda. Mariupol is resisting because of the Azov battalion that's been fighting there. And they are more or less, by some of the news, they have been decimated. It will fall any time now. So that area is going to be taken away. And Ukraine will lose that area. If he, he may decide to... Uh, you know, invest on Odessa and capture Odessa as well. So if that happens, Ukraine's access to Black Sea is completely cut off. Ukraine will become a landlocked country. So these areas are progressing as he wants. Plus, he's actually started attacking from the northern side, which is primarily to capture Kiev. And the regions of Kharkiv and, uh, you know, uh, Luhansk, etc. are traditionally Russian origin areas. And therefore, he's actually giving a message to the people. 
But the overall military strategy has been to minimize, keep the casualties to the minimum, destroy the military installations, demilitarize Ukraine, and then focus on the neo-Nazi elements and, and decimate the neo-Nazi elements. I think these actions are going on quite well. And they have established complete, you know, airborne dominance and the, you know, air superiority. Otherwise, you can't have a logistical line which is uh, uh, sitting duck for any, you know, air attacks uh, extending up to 40 miles, you know, towards Kiev. But he's moving very deliberately. This deliberate movement is being actually portrayed as if the full movement of the Russian military is stalled. And the whole campaign is now stuck because of fierce fighting from the Ukrainian. I see it the other way. It's a deliberate movement. When when Kiev falls, the war is over. But Kiev will fall, and he doesn't want Kiev to get destroyed completely. It will fall in a in a certain fashion, which is being done. But resistance will still be there. Much of that resistance is uh, is a danger to Ukraine itself because much of the resistance comes from massive amount of infusion of arms and weapons by the NATO and the US into Ukraine. There are mercenaries who are coming in. And of course, there are people, the Western Ukrainian is fiercely against the Russians. They are Catholics, and they are the ones who actually energize, and they have, they have been used by the West to actually energize this entire process. And therefore, they will fight, but he is not interested in the Western Ukraine at all. If at all, if anything happens at the end of this war, Ukraine will shrink and break up into three or four parts. And that's what is going to happen probably, you know, a few months from now. Uh, that also becomes a bargaining chip. So when when this geographically materializes, Putin's demand will become more rigid, and uh, Ukraine will have no choice but to accept the eventual, you know, uh, state of things, and then remain a disarmed, a poor country, and and a neutral country at the dictates of Russia. On the other hand, if they want to avoid that state, it's better to talk now, accept the neutral status. They have, a, you know, both in terms of agriculture as well as industry, traditional linkages with Russia is very beneficial to them, has been beneficial. When you talk to the actually industrialists, they prefer that. They can't switch completely to the West. So these are all factors that will come into the big, into, into the overall calculation. Sir, what was the purpose of going to Kyiv? Russian tanks and troops have been deployed along a very long stretch, 60 or 65 kilometers of stretch. If the destination really was Mariupol getting connected to Crimea, where was the need to go to Kiev? The idea of sending out an effective message to Ukraine and force them to change and, and uh, comply with his demands will only happen when the national capital falls. That's one of the most important requirements. Therefore, the key is an important strategic target for him. But uh, on the other hand, it is also important to, uh, you know, establish why Ukraine is important for Russia, because of the historical and cultural connections. And the origin of the Russian state itself begins in Kyiv. Kyiv Rus was the origi or, uh, original state from where the Russian state expanded and the Tsars finally came about and then it shifted to Moscow and Petersburg and then Kiev became, you know, uh, went by the uh, wayside. Uh, but now it's important to establish those connections once again, or rather highlight those connections. The connections have always been there. Lots of people in Ukrainians have relatives in Russia in, and vice versa in the other way. 
And these things actually factor, come into the entire consideration in terms of when people say, why is it moving so slowly, the campaign? Why is it, uh, you know, so much of destruction not there? And during the war, this is the first time you're seeing there are humanitarian corridors that are being made operational. There are ministers who are visiting the capital from other states in the midst of the war. You know, all these things don't happen unless the war is, you know, deliberately controlled and moved at a slow pace uh, for deliberate objectives. So and that is what Putin is doing. So, uh, I mean, I understand the cultural historical connection with Kiev, but what is the military purpose that is being served here? Uh, well, the military headquarters are there, the leadership is there. If you want to change the leadership, then you have to actually take control of it. He's destroying all the other military installations elsewhere. But Kiev is the nerve center of decision making as well. And controlling the resistance or the uh, overall response to Russian invasion. Uh, the decisions are made in Kiev. And, and therefore, uh, he will want to take control of it. And once he takes control of it, he would probably put a regime that's more, you know, acceptable in his opinion to Russia, as well as to the people, including the Eastern regions as well. What decisions will follow subsequently is is uh, is, is unpredictable right now. But Kiev, uh, investing in Kiev and taking control of Kiev is important from that context. From a military uh, so there, uh, you also mentioned that the NATO countries are sending weapons and mercenaries. How one, I want to understand that how are they sending these weapons? Where are these mercenaries coming from? And also, uh, is it possible that NATO might have pre-planned this and there were mercenaries and weapons sent in advance because they had the intelligence? that Russia would attack Ukraine. Yes. I want to understand if that is a possibility. In fact, that's a very strong possibility because there are lots of analysis and writings from, you know, very balanced uh, strategies uh, point to that factor. And, and the evidence is there in a very strong fashion. For example, uh, last week when Russia attacked a training base on the western Ukraine close to 15 miles from Polish border, that was, that has been the training ground for training Ukrainian forces, as well as resistance fighters, since 2014. And, the, and NATO has been training. There, were, there are three or four bases that have been attacked, which are all where NATO's presence has been there for training the Ukrainian military, as well as even the militia, like the, uh, uh, you know, Azov battalion. You know, these are all, you know, neo-Nazis who also been trained by the NATO as well. So uh, these are also, these points are very close to the Polish border, and the NATO can pump in their weapons through these, uh, you know, uh, military bases as well. And that's exactly what's been happening. So the main base near Lviv, uh, which was attacked with, uh, you know, a major attack last week, uh, reportedly killed about 200, 180 to 200 by some of the tweets that I've read of, uh, you know, mercenary fighters from whole of Europe who were actually collected there and training for further movement into Ukraine. And, and therefore, this is a plan that's been, the whole um, uh, war has been foreseen and has been planned and probably even, uh, you know, engineered in a way to provoke Russia to react in this manner as well. That is one of the analysis that's coming out. What do you think is eventually uh, going to, uh, let's say, Kyiv Falls? And let's say that uh, Putin is, able to lodge, uh, dislodge Zelensky and put in 
somebody who is more uh, neutral and or, or even more favorable to Russia. What what would be the ultimate end goal for Putin in this war, and how long will he take to fulfill that goal? Uh, well, I think it may take uh, maybe a, a month more to fulfill his objectives, and the objectives are very clear. He will demilitarize Ukraine. That means most of uh, the military, I believe by some writings and some analysis, much of the Ukraine military doesn't exist. They've already been destroyed in terms of resources, in terms of bases, in terms of weapons, have all been destroyed. Now, of course, much that's coming in is what is being fed in by the West into them. Uh, that is one point. So military capability will get decimated. There's virtually no air force that exists. There are very few. They, they fly something like 10 sorties a day or something like that. Whereas Russia launches about 200 sorties a day. And uh, so there's no Air Force worth its name really existing. There are some drones that are flying. So the military capability will vanish in a month's time. It doesn't have a Navy because Black Sea gets uh, you know blocked by Russia. And therefore, no Navy will be able to actually uh, uh, emerge. And the uh, army that has been bottled up in the Donbass region, will most of them will you know cease to exist in a matter of time. Uh, so what would be the end result? Yes, he can capture Keith. He can install somebody um, which he thinks is neutral and does not you know, harm the Russian interest. It can be set up. But it is the West's, uh, the USA's objective and NATO's objective to actually create a long-running insurgent campaign, which is going to be absolutely detrimental for Ukraine and, and the people of Ukraine. And that could actually materialize with lots of foreign forces being present. How Putin deals with that is going to be different. Because I'm not, I'm, I'm, my analysis is that he's not going to fall into that trap. So he will take away the Donbass region. He will take away the southern part. Black Sea dominance will be with Russia. The access, uh, Ukraine will become landlocked country. Rest of Ukraine, he will uh, sort of liberating it and he will move out again, allowing the Ukrainian leadership, new leadership to take control. How they deal with the Western Ukraine, how they deal with these insurgent elements that will now activate the, uh, you know, uh, uh, war, or uh, revive the war, will depend on new Ukrainian leadership. And how Putin deals with it will be, I think, the strategy will be a little different because he may now flag the new revival of insurgent campaigns as an interference by NATO. And if he considers that as a war by NATO, then the escalation ladder will start moving up. And uh, that's a warning for the West, which uh, how these things will play out is a difficult thing to predict. And what are the implications for India? Because we are already seeing some amount of pressure building up from various countries on India for its neutral stance. In fact, uh, uh, we also have had a visit from the Chinese foreign ministry. And we at the same time, there is a lot of pressure by the US on China for siding with Russia. What is what are the ramifications for India in this entire war? To understand uh, the ramifications for India, I think we need to you know first uh, recognize what's going to happen to the world. Now, Russia is not a small country, so sanctions will have a, a reciprocal effect on the global economy as well. The much of you know, for example, uh, both Ukraine and Russia are the dominant you know exporters of wheat to majority of the world. And therefore, it will have its impact in terms of food crisis in Africa, in other countries. 
including the cost of living will go up in Europe itself. Energy, Russia is the dominant player in the energy market. The prices will shoot up. They are already shooting up. And, and, and then there are some rare, uh, you know, metals like nickel and metals that are required for, you know, uh, uh, chips industry and uh, in the electronic industry. Russia controls that as well. And, and, and these things, Russia can also remain as a self-contained economy by locking out the West. So both will actually uh, suffer. And this is where I think Europe will start making a noise because they'll be the most affected. It will also impact India because every uh, $1 rise is a half a billion dollar rise in import bill for India's oil, right? And therefore, economically, we are, we are going to be, you know, looking at some tough times ahead. On the other hand, militarily, and uh, our military dependence, I won't call it as uh, dependence as a partnership and strategic partnership, but yes, dependence because much of our equipment is Russian origin. And the West objective is to delink us completely from Russia and become buyers from the West. It's not in our interest either. We have a long-term relationship with Russia, and therefore we've gained significantly in a lot of areas by getting access to technology as well and developing our uh, technologies with that help as well. On the other hand, whatever we bought from the West have been an off-the-shelf buy, as I call it. And the technology transfer has been very, very limited. So India strategically will have to be very careful in taking those decisions. It, 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 we need to value the strategic partnership with Russia and not get into, you know, sidelining Russia because that is extremely important. In the larger context of the international uh, system, changes that are coming about, India, Russia and China are extremely important, how the world will get shaped up. And for that, I think this visit is important because China needs to behave and sort out its, you know, the problem that it has ratcheted up over the last three years with India. And that needs to come to a, some kind of a, you know, better management, pull down things. And then in economic terms, China is, is the largest, uh, you know, is the exporter for the world. And therefore, Western markets are equally important. So China will not want to disturb that as well. But what is more important is the, this war has highlighted how dominant is the Western control of global economy. Dollar is the universal currency virtually. And, and all efforts will initiate now more strongly with these three players, particularly Russia, India and China, to water down the dollar's overwhelming dominance in the international economy. And that is how the economic situations will change. You will actually might see uh, uh, two blocks of economic systems now evolving over the next 20 years. And China will be a major player in that process. So you are essentially saying that there will be de-dollarization of the global economy. Absolutely. This is this is a very strong beginning for that. And, and that's good for the world as well. It's, it's time because the U.S. has got used to uh, taking up sanctions as a coercive measure to get the world to comply with its demands. And everything works towards the U.S. interests. And that, I think, is counterproductive. So the trust factor with respect to U.S. and the Western systems has taken a beating in this process. Because two things have happened. One, the world wants the UN to play a major role. Everything must have the sanctity of UN approval for any sanctions or any steps taken. On the other hand, every sanction and every step that has been taken has been outside the ambit of the UN. And it has been led by the US and now NATO behaves outside the UN system. And therefore, uh, you know, people have, uh, uh, the world has lumped 
with what has happened in Afghanistan, Libya, in Syria, in uh, uh, in Iraq. They are now going to, these things, questions will drag us now. How is it any different from what is happening in Ukraine? And therefore, the West has double standards. It's time that, you know, the international system gets reformed. The trust factor has been the biggest casualty with respect to, you know, the Western uh, process, where the world will now see the Western system as only trying to retain their dominance and have the rest of the world serve their interests. And this is the problem, and this will be the main issue that will rise up in the next 10 years, 20 years. One last question. Do you see resolution of the uh, line of actual control standoff India and China were engaged in 2020. Do you think that this is a huge opportunity for the two countries to resolve that issue and uh, move forward? It's a huge opportunity for both the countries because you need to, if they look into the larger, you know, international system dimension and how strongly BRICS can play a major role in reforming the world order and even the UN system, this is a great opportunity to resolve the differences between the two countries. Having said that, notwithstanding that part, I think it's going to be extremely difficult because each country, I mean, both uh, India and China, are also prisoners to the domestic politics and the domestic narrative that have been created around the LAC over the last 60 years. It is not easy to overcome that. It needs a very, very forceful, very bold leaderships to put away all that, think and sell the idea that these two countries have a great role to play in the international order in the years to come. And therefore, take there has to be a give and take and, and you have to find a compromise. Unfortunately, China has become too powerful and therefore there is a certain number of hubris that affects China's decision making. And unless that you know gets resolved, it will be a difficult case to resolve between the two countries. Well, this has been a very enlightening conversation. Thank you for being with us today at the New Indian. Thank you. Thank you, Aarti. It's been a pleasure being with you. Thank you.